This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 18th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The media landscape has changed dramatically in recent years. Higher ed may not be far behind, and dealing with change is, well, difficult. Barry Weiss, former editor and writer at The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times, says there are reasons to be optimistic about the opportunities to start anew and rooting those new things in deep principles. We spoke late last month. A while back, you and I were talking to some Cato supporters, and uh, you were giving us a pretty dour assessment of uh, various <laughs> elements of uh, life in the United States. Um and you said, nonetheless, toward the end of our conversation, nonetheless, I am optimistic. And I thought, boy, I'd really like to understand why. And so here you are to discuss that. So uh, in general, uh, there's plenty to be uh, bothered about. There are whole schools of thought that tell us how not to be bothered by all the things that can bother us uh, in the world around us. Why are you optimistic about uh, the future? Well, great to be here, Caleb. Uh, you know, I, I guess it depends on the morning. I woke up this morning on the optimistic side of the bed, but I'll say as a general rule that the more I am untethering myself from the things that I assumed would always be permanent fixtures of American life, um, the more optimistic I am. So what do I mean by that? You know, I grew up in a world in which I assumed that, you know, our elite universities would always be sort of mission driven in the pursuit of truth. Um, I assumed that, you know, the point of K through 12 education was to teach people, you know, not what to think, but how to think. You know, I was of the view that a newspaper like the New York Times was meant to be, you know, the paper of record and to pursue the motto of all the news that's fit to print, not all the news that fits the narrative and so on and so forth. You get my drift. So, the the pessimism comes when I sort of look behind my shoulder at the smoldering rubble of so many of those once great institutions. But when I cast my vision toward, I don't know what we want to call it, the the Wild West, uh, the the new horizon, the place where the new things are being built, and put my energy not into falsely thinking that I can somehow reform those things that have revealed themselves to be sort of rotted out, but building new ones, that's where my optimism comes from. And it took me kind of a while to get there. And there's still some part of me, of course, that is mourning those things because they're because they're incredible and because it took so very long and so much human capital and will to build them. And anyone that's involved in starting anything new at all realizes how unbelievably hard it is to build anything, let alone a great institution. So, you know, again, it really has to do with vantage point. If you're looking backward, that's where the pessimism comes. But if you're looking forward and putting energy into building anew, that's when I feel most sort of energized and and optimistic myself. Yeah. Uh, Joel Hodgson, the creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000, among other things, a great comedian, he says, we know what to think about the past. And people don't know what to think about things that have yet to be created or things that are being created in real time right now. And so maybe it's just a natural inclination that well, whatever stability existed in the past is something that we're going to look at so fondly 
and think about them wistfully. Uh, and yeah. uh, it's it's unsettling to have to contend with uh, things that are being created now or will be created soon. Yeah. And it's, you know, even in the the little media company that I'm starting to build, there's a sense that when you're in a place like the New York Times, as flawed as it was, at least you have a sense of what the rules ought to be, right? And you see to the extent to which the new the 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 newspaper is deviating from those rules. Now here you are, you know, with a blank piece of paper and a small group of people who are dissatisfied with the current lay of the land and wanting to start something new. Well, where do you start? What are the rules? You're the new gatekeeper now. You know, if you screw up, there's no institution to sort of insulate you from the mistake. You know, you're sort of alone, naked in the public square. So, of course, that would terrify people. Of course, they're just going to want to run back to the old. Um, All of that makes a tremendous amount of sense. I guess I would say that at this point, though, we don't really have much of a choice. At least I don't feel that way. I feel like the, the, they're, they're, for me at least, I couldn't unsee the unraveling once I started to see it. And I could no longer convince myself that, oh, it's just a one off here. It's just a, you know, the, the hunting of a witch there. It was impossible for me not to see the way that these stories were totally interconnected. Um, and and once I saw it, then then it kind of became no choice. I have to start something new. And so for me, you know, the area that I am capable of building things is not in, you know, engineering or coding or anything like that. It's in media. Um, but I'm also throwing my support behind other things that I think are essential. And the two that I've devoted the most energy to are um, this new university in Austin that we're we're building, and and Fair, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which is an attempt to sort of rebuild, really, which is an attempt to sort of pick up the flag that the ACLU has tragically put down. What do you see as the things that the ACLU has put down? Oh my God! I mean, um, I, ha- I don't. I'm I'm not asking that as uh, <laughs> ignorantly. I have I have my own thoughts about it. But what do you think? Well, it's just, I mean, it's it's announced itself this way. It's trying to be another one of these sort of social justice organizations rather than defending civil liberties, just, you know, pretty plainly. The, the ACLU that defended the rights of Nazis to watch, to march through Skokie, you know, that that's, would be unfathomable to the ACLU of today. And lots of people from Wendy Kaminer to Ira Glasser to Nadine Strassen, people that helped build the organization, have articulated this way more uh, bitingly and with way more knowledge than I could in a few sentences. So they're worth looking up. Watching the reaction of people that are entrenched in the old world to the advent of new things is quite a fascinating thing to watch um, because they're apoplectic about it consistently. Um, And you know, I just find that reaction both puzzling, but also, you know, I- I- extremely gratifying because it's proof that we're that we're making that we're at least making some kind of impact. And you know, as as anyone in Silicon Valley will tell you, or anyone who's ever tried to start anything at all, tons of things fail, right? But also, you have to remember that Harvard was once a startup. The New York Times was once a startup. Everything that exists in the world was built by somebody. So. Why not now? Why wouldn't we try and build things again? 
you know, there's an attitude that probably ought to go with something like starting a university or uh, embarking on some new massive tech venture. Uh, and that's humility, because you really don't know a lot of things that people who've been working in a uni- in a traditional university, a traditional newspaper, a traditional uh, media company uh, for decades, they they knew what the rules are. They knew where they could uh, lean on rules. I can remember being a reporter and knowing the coded language of reporters when the reporter or the newspaper didn't like something that they were covering as a news item. Like, give me an example of what you're thinking of. I'm just curious. If someone insists in a news article and you say that this person insists nonetheless that X is true, you can sort of tell that, there, that it's, it's a bit of a tell that there is a, a presumption against what that person is saying or the, the right. way headlines totally. are written or that sort of thing. And so, uh, you know, it seems easy. It should seem easier to have humility uh, in launching a, a new kind of venture, especially when there's this massive history of other ventures that had uh, that, you know, continue on, but are not performing particularly well in the current environment. Uh, so. From your view, how do you evaluate what to pluck that worked in the old model for the new one? Well, I think it's about I think it's about grounding the new things in deep principles that have, you know, what's that guy who talks about Lindy, right? That have lasted for a long time and that we know make a difference. So in other words, you can have something incredibly newfangled, a web3 business or, you know, a crypto business or, you know, a new publishing house that tries to make an end run around the big 5 by getting books in the hands of readers much more quickly or NFTs or whatever the new thing is, but that are grounded in very old principles. So for example, you know, and it strikes me as really a a sign of how much we've lost that these principles even need to be articulated. But, you know, let's just say the pursuit of excellence being a value inside a company. The idea that, you know, we should hire a person for the job um, that's the best person for the job. The idea that, you know, we shouldn't judge people or divide people inside a company based on their immutable characteristics, and so on and so forth. Um, the idea in a university, like I said before, that you know the, the goal of a university is the pursuit of truth. And if you want to be able to pursue the truth, you must have the ability to speak and think freely. Um, that's just no longer the case right now in a lot of universities. They're, they have a different mission. Um, and very and very clearly so. And so for me it's it's not about like the 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 business strategy or the new tools can be radically different and new and would have been completely unfamiliar to people that lived, you know, 3 centuries ago, but the principles that sort of undergird them I think are ones that should be time tested if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I I stopped being a, a reporter like fifteen years ago, sixteen years ago, and I'm imagining the difficulties that reporters have now trying to make use of Twitter uh, in a productive way, without stepping in it. And uh, 
understanding that uh, as unforgiving as a lot of uh, consumers, media consumers might be of errors made on Twitter, that's just kind of how it is now. And the rules that uh, emerge out of that, I guess, just need to be cognizant of the fact that errors occur and but they can be corrected just as quickly. Yeah, it's it's beyond the media, though. It's really about how Twitter has become a force inside pretty much every major American company um, in the sense that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Disney or a reporter at The New York Times or Netflix. Right. Everyone lives in fear of of the of the Twitter mob. And it's really a curious thing because. If you actually look at the number of people that are on Twitter, it represents a very, very, very small sliver of actual yeah, Americans. It's not a real, it's not a real but place. The Americans that <laughs> no, but it, but it, no, but it's the realest place, right? On the one <laughs> hand, it's unreal. It's not real at all. It's completely disconnected from the 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 ordinary Americans' position, um, the way ordinary Americans spend time, and so on and so forth. What it represents is this sort of sliver of the American elite. The people that work inside companies like Twitter and Amazon and Netflix and The New York Times um, and Simon & Schuster and Penguin. Um, And so in a way, looking at Twitter is a view into the way that those people see the world. And I would argue that so much of what we see in the culture is sort of downstream of what they declare is in and out. Well, but but wouldn't you say that that having that view, being able to look at Twitter as a fishbowl and saying, oh, this is how these people think. I mean, I am I fully admit I am one of the unfortunate Twitter people. Um, I, oh, uh, I, is, of course. I'm addicted to it. How I write. Not proud and, of and it. I, but, yeah, mm-hmm. no, no, it's nothing to be proud of. Uh, so uh, but at the same time, being able to look at it and if you can take a step back, which can be difficult, I'm sure, and just saying, oh, that's that's how these people think. It, they're utterly disconnected. They, we, I should say, are often utterly disconnected from how uh, regular people think, but it's useful to know how these folks think about things. Oh, it's it's very useful. All, all I'm saying, it's it, totally, I agree. It's very useful. I also think that that ability to sort of peer into the dashed off thoughts of this particular class of people has led perhaps more than anything else to the utter collapse um, in public trust in American elites and 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 their authority, certainly their moral authority. Do you see a connection between the two? Yeah, I do see that. Uh, but I think Twitter is sort of emblematic of the new media landscape that allows you to develop a certain kind of tunnel vision. And it takes uh, quite a bit of, I think, discipline and discernment to not allow uh, specific narratives that agree with your priors to come to dominate your worldview. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the idea, I don't know who originally came up with the idea of the feed I don't know if it was Facebook or Twitter, but it reminds me of like, you know, it's like a feedback and you just kind of go back to the trough again and again for the same uh, grub. And, you know, it's obvious that as human beings, you know, or animals, I guess, we have a desire for a particular kind of political heroine that, as you said, Caleb, confirms our priors, makes us feel part of a team, makes us 
you know, frankly, have the delight of pouncing on other people who disagree with us. Like, let's not understate how fun it can be to dunk <laughs> on other people. Um, and the question, right, is in a world where none of those things are going away, can there be a model um, that's not a model of essentially feeding people a drug, but feeding them the truth? Like, is well, there a the, business model for that? I'm not sure. Boy, I hope so. But the uh, there has to be a demand for it. I think I mentioned this in our previous conversation is that uh, occasionally, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn. I mean, I'm I'm certainly pleased to to see this that this is the case of people who are of one persuasion uh, ideologically to listen to the Cato Daily podcast on purpose, knowing that they're likely to disagree with things they hear there, um, in the interest of trying to actively beat out of them things that they know somewhere they might not be true that they believe. Well, that's the kind of fun thing about libertarians in general is I know when I'm in a conversation with a libertarian, first of all, <laughs> because they're a minority in any room, they know their stuff and they can kind of like throw down in a way that if you're just a progressive or conservative, I don't think you can. But also, I know that I'm going to disagree with like half the things that they say, and I'm not ever sure what half they're going to be. Um, and that's, you know, that's a fun thing, I think, about being in conversation with libertarians or conversations curated by them. Well, I think it was Jonah Goldberg says, if you ever want to clean out your intellectual inventory, argue with a libertarian. Totally. I love that. <laughs> Jonah's great. Uh well, and, and also, you're not a real libertarian unless another libertarian has said you're not a real libertarian. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and and it, it is sort of natural, I think, for uh, libertarians who, by the way, are used to being on the defensive on any number of issues uh, when it comes to like how general mainstream people think about things. Um, but. Yeah, and so and so that sort of sort of demands that you come armed with more than well, it's just my opinion. Completely, I've been accused myself of being a libertarian, but then other libertarians have assured me that I'm not. So I don't know. I think I have libertarian tendencies for sure. Well, if I here's the question: If I accuse you of not being a real libertarian, are you more or less of a real libertarian at that point? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, the university at Austin, what has been the biggest problem that you that's been in the back of your mind of developing this project? Yeah, th there are two things. The first is just the unbelievable scope of a, of a project like a new university. I mean, th there's a reason that people think that this idea is a little nuts. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the scope of it. Um, I think the other question, right, is really, really foundational and philosophical. Like, what is a university? Should the purpose of a university be to get an enormous endowment to do research that's sponsored by government agencies and sort of mimic the model that already exists here in America? Or should it be to create something radically different, maybe like a Deep Springs type model? Um but, you know, instead of, I guess, grooming horses and chopping firewood, uh, maybe things like internships with, you know, Elon Musk and other founders based in Texas. In other words, the, the question of like 
really what is a university about? What is the purpose of a university? That's one that I think is up for grabs, especially in a world where the job market is so radically different than it once was, when the cost of universities is so astronomical, when student debt is crippling generations. I think it's a good time to sort of revisit first principles and ask, what is the purpose of a university? Um, And I think there are really different answers to that question. And certainly in the group of people that are gathered for this new um, University of Austin, it's just an incredibly smart group of people with different answers to that. And I think part of the challenge of it, but also part of the fun of it is sort of wrestling, wrestling with the question together. Yeah, and I think it's also a really good time to be uh, investing in new models or looking at new models when we've just had a two-year experience when a lot of students and a lot of parents who have been funding university educations have been rethinking what the value proposition is exactly. for a high-end university education. Listen, the the one thing I will say that has been maybe the most gratifying at all of all, all of many gratifying things since we've announced this new project less than four months ago is that more than four thousand professors in American universities and colleges that already exist have written to us asking for jobs um, because for kind of things we've been referencing in this conversation, um, they are sort of desperate for a school that actually exists in the pursuit of truth. Um, It's like the outpouring for this project has been commensurate with the amount of rage (laughs) that met it on Twitter. Let's just say that. Barry Weiss publishes the Common Sense newsletter on Substack. We spoke late last month. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 